Dwight Moody was in our church. She said, yes, and he's going to preach again tonight. And uh, she said, she said, I'm going to my room to pray, and don't bother me. I don't want anything to eat. I'm going to pray and fast all day. And um, uh, that morning, when Dwight Moody had spoken in the church, he was struck by the lack of spirit response. Talked with the pastor about it afterwards. And he said, he said uh, there was just a real coldness uh, and, and, and uh, just a lack of connection. And the pastor had felt it too. So Elizabeth was praying all that day. Uh, that night, Dwight Moody spoke again. And at the end of his sermon, he said, uh, as he had done that morning, and no one, no one stood, he said, I would like to ask if there's anyone here who would like to accept this Christ as their Savior to please stand. And one person stood, and then another person stood. And then in a few minutes, 15 or 20 people were standing, and Moody looked around at the pastor, and he thought, I don't think they understood what I was saying. He said, just a minute, ladies and gentlemen. He said, what I'm asking for is if you're not a Christian. He thought maybe they were wanting to rededicate. If you're not a Christian, if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, and you would like to accept this Christ as your Savior, please stand. The rest of you can sit down. And they continued to stand until 400 people were standing that night. Her prayer work behind the scenes had bound the strong man. And that was the beginning of Dwight Moody's great European crusade in which over a million people accepted Christ as their Savior. He went up to Scotland the next week, and he was going to preach there. And uh, he finally wired home and said, I can't leave. There's a great revival breaking out. And he stayed in Scotland for six or eight weeks and then moved on to the rest of Europe. Sometimes it takes years to bind the strong man. Now, Kathy had mentioned uh, this in Mark 2, that there were four people taking that one man to the feet of Jesus. And how hard, you had said, it would be for one person to have done that. And I think that that's an ex excellent point is that Christ said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. There is a power that comes in the gathered force of his people. That says that. It's in Matthew. There's one in, in Luke also. But I think it's in Matthew, uh, I want to say eight. That's probably not right. Uh, but I can find it pretty quickly. Um, nine. It says, where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I um, in the midst of them. And um, it doesn't mean that an individual person praying does not have power. Uh, actually, it may be on over here around 16. Let me see. Um, It's a, 18, 19. 18, yeah, okay, thank you. 
Yeah, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. You see this in nature. I think nature is a picture of spiritual reality and spiritual truth, and you see it in the nucleus of an atom in which there's only a couple of um, uh, protons or neutrons in it. It's very easy to break that nucleus, and it doesn't carry much power to it, but you get up to where there are 18 or 20 or 30 items in that nucleus, protons and neutrons coming together, and uh, you try to break that nucleus, and it's next to impossible to break, and when they do, it's a nuclear explosion. It has that much power in the nucleus. And so as people come together, and this is what my hope is, uh, for perhaps the hunger that we see here and the heart's desire that we see here is that a group of people can come together of one heart and one accord seeking God and knowing that prayer makes a vital strategic difference in outcome, in plan A or plan B. God's plan A in, in Ezekiel 22.30 was that an intercessor would come and his whole direction with his people would be different. But because an intercessor didn't come and stand in the gap that existed between Israel and the land, he had to go to plan B in a sense. He had to go to a consequential result. Prayer makes a difference between plan A and plan B. And if we can begin to see the need not just to pray, but to hang in there until we pin Satan's neck to the ground and win, the, the, the essence of intercession is that we don't give up until the answer is at hand, in hand. Because Satan doesn't quit until he must. All he has to do is get us to give up. And, and, and go home sooner. It's just stop the chemo after two sessions instead of 16. And the cancer will come back. And that's where he gets us because we give up. We get weary. And prayer warriors will do that, but an intercessor has to, has to stand there and be in that gap until the breach is built up. Turn to Isaiah 59, I mean 58, for just a moment. There's a picture of that. Did I, what? Isaiah 58. Verse 11, I'll start as a lead in. The Lord shall guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and make fat your bones, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail and they that shall be of you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach. Uh, Isaiah 58, verse 12. The restorer of paths to dwell in. That's an intercessor. We stand in the gap. What, what, for whatever reason the gap exists, we stand there in prayer, but we're also willing to be an instrument through which that prayer is answered. If we're praying for somebody's financial needs to be met, God may be saying, let me meet part of their needs through you. If we're praying for someone to sustain a person and encourage a person, he may be wanting to meet that encouragement need through you. 
you and I have to be willing as if we move into a position of intercession for God to use us as not just in the prayer closet um, but in actuality. And so we see um, I wanted to pick up one thing. The passive side of intercession uh, in Exodus 17 where Moses is on the hilltop, that was a passive place. He wasn't down in the fight. Sometimes intercession is in the fight. But sometimes after we've been doing the fight and doing the hard work, he brings us to this place of this relinquishment, this place of just standing as bridging the gap. And it, is a, it was a passive place, but when Moses could not hold his arms up in that passive mode of gap restore of the breach, of, of connecting uh, the two ends of heaven and, and of the battle going on in the valley, they lost the battle when he didn't do what he did. When we don't relinquish and stand ready to move as God would have us move, the battle shifts. Teresa? That's sort of the Moses kind of thing. There are times when all I do is I see myself lifting a person before the Lord. I don't know what to pray. I hold them before the Lord. See, I may be in a, in a position not of relinquishment because I'm not a family member or I'm not close, so I can hold them before the Lord. Um, if, if it's a more of a family thing, I can relinquish my treasures to the Lord. And then he has them. I don't have to see myself holding them before the Lord. He's got them. And it does change my prayer life and how I pray. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention here because of something that Michelle had brought up is the spiritual warfare and how it affects us and how it breaks out. And there are two pictures. These are physical pictures, but they paint a picture of the spiritual reality uh, in uh, Jude and in Revelation. So turn to Jude, which is just before Revelation. There's a strange scripture here, and we could do a whole lesson on this, which we're not going to. Um, but it talks about, in verse 9, Michael the archangel fighting with Satan over the body of Moses. Now, you know, Moses was not buried by man. He was buried by God, if you'll remember that at the end of Deuteronomy. So no one knew where Moses was buried. And evidently, the reason for that is because Satan was trying to get at his dead body. And, and you know, we see graveyards being strategic in the occult. They, they thrive around the dead. So I think there's probably something that is significant here on that. But the picture, uh, and, and Michael the archangel didn't rail against Satan, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. 
but there was a fight over the body of Moses. I have my theory on that, but I'm not going to go into it. <laughs> but I think that this is a picture that when we are getting ready to leave our old man, when we're getting ready to leave the old rags that have bound us up and go into either a, a, a first-time relationship with Christ or even a new rededicated recommitment, committed dedi- uh, uh, life to Christ, Satan is there seeking to possess the old so that you can't move into the new. And you look at Revelation 12 and you see the opposite end of that tunnel where um, there was a woman great with child and this woman was Israel and she was getting ready to bring forth a male child which is Christ. And... um, In verse 7, war broke out in heaven. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 7 of Revelation. What did I say? Did I say something different than that? Okay, Revelation 12, verse 7. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon is identified as Satan or the devil. And the dragon fought and his angels and did not prevail, underline the word prevail, Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And um, I think I missed uh, at the, at the, up above there, the woman, verse 6, fleeing into, um, to the, oh, verse 4, I'm sorry. This dragon, Satan, stood in the middle of verse 4 before the woman, Israel, which was ready to be delivered, Christ, to devour the child as soon as it was born. Now that's what's going on in the spiritual realm. What was happening in the physical realm at the time of the birth of Christ? Yes, Herod issued an order that every child, male child under the age of two be killed. Behind the scenes, this is what was happening. Satan was there seeking to devour the child, so he put in to, to Herod the idea of killing every male child under two. We see that going on, but what's going on behind the scenes is Satan is right there trying to, trying to get rid of Christ. Okay, the picture here is that when we are getting ready to move into something really new with God, he's either there before we hit that threshold and that corridor, seeking to bind us up and keep us in the old grave clothes, and the old body, or if we've moved into newness and we've rededicated our life and we're trying to move in a new direction, we get hit. We get hit with everything he can throw at us to devour the new so that the new can never be fully born and fleshed out in us. So whenever we're getting ready to leave the old and go into the new, tremendous spiritual warfare will break out. And again, this is where prayers are needed because prayer is the only spiritual instrument that addresses and invades that spiritual realm where the warfare happens. 
Are there any thoughts before we go on? Absolutely, absolutely, uh, that happens. Or they're, or they're getting ready, you know, they're coming close and then all sorts of stuff happens and they, uh, suddenly they're, you know, 20 paces back instead of right there on the, on the threshold. Absolutely, yes. I'm, I'm absolutely relating it to today's life when, let's say, that there's a study that's really important to you. You don't know it, but it, you think, okay, I'm going to go. Uh, or I think maybe I, this is really going to be important for me, and then everything just starts happening to keep you from getting there. And it can be anything from physical to emotional to relational. It doesn't, I mean, to financial, to refrigerators breaking down or the air conditioner going. And so you don't go. Now, if it's just something new and it's, it's neither here nor there in terms of your spiritual connection with the Lord and your growth in Him, I'm, no, I'm not, I'm not referring to that. But something where there's something very important to God's kingdom in you and what needs to be done, Satan will be there trying to keep that from happening. Yes, and you, he will overplay his hand. And you will know it because you'll finally say this can't all be coincidence. Yes. Okay. Well, and and I've experienced it in recent months as I have really felt led, felt really burdened to bring the prayer ministry down to a much deeper level and to bring people and, and help coalesce and train people to go into deeper levels of intercession. Uh, there's just been all sorts of uh, warfare, uh, emotional, relational, just stuff. Uh, double, double, toil and trouble was that Hamlet's thing. It, it, it's like the cauldron is just kind of and after a while you think, okay, why is all of this happening? That's why. He tries to keep things from happening that are of, of God's kingdom. And I don't know what he sees. I don't know if he has infrared vision. Uh, but I think there's some something that's given out when a person is getting ready, is on the cusp of something new spiritually. And I think he goes for it. Yes. He just sends out these little messages, you know? And, and they're not characteristic of you, but they're there. Yeah. 
So, um, let's go on then here. Um, I'm going to finish up some of the characteristics of intercession. Identification is one, identifying with the one for whom we're praying, but this must be trumped by identification with God and what he wants in that person's life. If I'm only identifying with the one for whom I'm praying, I will enmesh with them, and my prayers will be greatly contaminated. And yet I will think they're not because they're so intense. Well, if, if I, I can get to obsessing, I, they can be in my mind all the time, and I'm just praying and praying a certain way. Maybe it's not God's way, though. Maybe God has something else here, but I'm praying, Lord, save them from this, to, you know, uh, rescue them from this, help them. And I may not even be praying the real issue. I'm praying the symptom. And I'm praying with great intensity. And, and, but maybe they start consuming my thought life. Maybe they start taking over my focus, and I'm not focused on God anymore. I'm focused on them because I'm praying for them. Now, identification for the one for whom I'm praying is important because that helps me stay in there. But if that's the dominant identification, then I, I'm going to veer off and not even know I've veered off. My dominant has to be, Lord, what do you want for this person? And I'm praying your will. I'm praying, and so my focus is God and God's will and ways going into that person's situation and liberating them. So identify. Well, and. Well, and, there's, and certainly that needs to be done. And I do not see automatically that praying God's will dilutes it and just means that we're just giving a caveat and putting everything out, God, your will be done, and then we go on about our merry way. That's the danger, that if I just pray God's will be done, then I just kind of leave it and I forget about it and I don't see it as this, this wrestling through the battle. And that sometimes God will use me in facilitating his will. So it's a personal thing, like he used Moses. Moses had to be in that position. He used, uh, turn to Numbers 14, he used Aaron. There was a plague that had broken out. Uh, actually, maybe number 16. Yeah, it is number 16. Uh, a plague had broken out because of the children of Israel's defiance against God. And the Lord spoke to Moses. So see, he uses us to be an instrument. And if we just say, Lord, your will be done, it's very easy for us just to then get on. Uh, now, the, uh, the uh, other side of that is if we pray specifics, we may be praying our will and not God's will. And that's where... 
prayer communion and learning how to really get in sync with what God is wanting and identifying with God first on this um, is important because we don't want to pray our will and call it God's. And sometimes God allows a person to eat with the pigs, the prodigal son, in order to get them to repentance. And we don't want that, so we try to spare them from all pain and suffering. And so that's why we've got to be aligned with the Lord. But he may ask us to pray on, on a, a, a given specific point or pray in a specific timing on no particular point. Just, Lord, be in this, protect whatever is going on, be there. And we are somehow some sort of a conduit that shuttles his will and his way into this situation here on earth. And the danger of just saying your will be done is that we will forget that we're part of the battle. So here in Numbers uh, 16, uh, the children of Israel are going crazy. And the Lord speaks in verse 44 to Moses, saying, Get up from among this congregation that I may consume them as in a moment, because he's very angry with them. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer and put fire thereon from off the altar. Now this is from off the prayer altar the golden altar, before the veil in the holy place. So see, this shows you the strategic role of prayer in standing in the gap of intercession here. Um, Moses said to Aaron, Take a censer and put fire thereon and uh, from off the altar and put incense upon it. And in Revelation 5 and 8, we see that the incense that's on the coals of that golden altar in heaven is the prayers of the saints. Okay? So Aaron is taking and doing a physical action that represents and is symbolic of prayer. And he takes the censer, he puts fire there on from off the altar, and he puts incense on it, and he goes quickly unto the congregation, and he makes an atonement for them. This reflects this active role that we have, but we have to do it at God's bidding. And so he may, he may nudge you, Kay, to pray a certain way. It's not you making it up. It's like it's a burden on you that you need to pray a certain way. Boy, you pray a certain way. Uh, he, the Spirit will nudge us to pray specifics. The danger is that we will nudge ourselves to pray specifics and we pray for rescue and we pray for keeping our loved ones from suffering. And suffering is sometimes the only tool in which uh, God can summons for repentance and for rescue, for real rescue. Uh, so we tend to pray our, our wants, but we have to listen to God for us to pray the need, the real issue. So he goes into the congregation to make atonement for them for their was wrath that had gone out from the Lord. It's like he was looking for an intercessor to stand in the gap between him and the land, and here he found one. And the plague was begun. And this, <clears throat> verse 48, I'm going to go on here and read verse 47, but 48 is the key. But verse 47 says, Aaron took as Moses commanded, 
and ran into the midst of the congregation, and behold, the plague was begun among the people, and he put on incense, and he made atonement for the people, and he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. That's the gap. We stand between that person who is spiritually dead and the living God. And we build up the hedge until they can see God and they can begin moving toward him. And the gap is not there the same way. You know, when I was in seventh grade, uh, we had a science teacher, and uh, he had this big, huge 9-volt battery. And of course, they look different then than they do now, but it was a big square one like that. It had two posts on it. And he had two wires on it, on each post. It had a wire on each post. And uh, <clears throat> he had us stand in a circle that didn't quite complete. There was one person that he had to stand back. <coughs> and he asked the person on either side of the battery, the one on the left, to hold on to the wire. <coughs> and somehow he had that battery generated, so it's ginning. He had the person on the other side hold on to the wire. And he said, what do you feel? And we said, well, we don't feel anything. And then he, he asked whoever it was, Johnny, he said, Stand, stand here, come into the gap here, and take hold of each person's hand on either side of you. <clears throat> and when he did that, he completed the gap, and we all felt the electric shock go through the wires. Nothing happened to anyone who was holding onto the wires in each other's hands until the circuit was completed. There is power coming from heaven, and there is need down here, and there is a gap in the circuit. And the intercessor is the one who stands in the gap and holds, by virtue of our faith and our belief and our seeking God the best we know how to seek him, we hold the hand of God. Because we are human and fellow strugglers here, we hold the hand of the one who cannot hear from God because there's a gap. And we bridge the gap and let the electricity flow until that person is able to hear enough on his own and believe enough on his own to begin moving toward God. We stand in the gap. Power is there. It just doesn't flow until there's an intercessor. We stand between the dead and the living, the dead spirit, the dead heart, the discouraged heart, the discouraged soul, the despondent soul. And we pray God's kingdom come. His will be done. And if we're nudged to pray specifics, we pray specifics. And we keep doing that. If we're nudged to pray behind the scenes and specifics, that's what we do. Okay. Any uh, other questions or thoughts or comments before we go on? Yes. Well, in, in there's scripture in, <clears throat> I think it's um, 
it's probably Luke 6, it's Matthew 6 too, but I think it's in Luke 6 mostly, where it says, uh, pray, uh, the Father knows what you have need of before you ask, but pray anyway, pray without ceasing. And then you go over to Romans 8, 26, and it says that we don't know what to pray for sometimes, but the Holy Spirit prays for us and intercedes in groanings and intercessions according to the will of God. So you have this prayer circuit here <clears throat> that we start praying. God knows what we have need of before we even ask, so why pray is the question. Well, because we don't know what we have need of. We know what we have want of. So we will always pray the prick. Wherever the thorn is, wherever the discomfort is, that's what we start praying. Lord, help me with this. Help me with that. It's my need. So I start lofting my prayer needs up. And then the Holy Spirit in me, Holy Spirit in heaven, Christ in heaven, brings down, the Holy Spirit starts interceding within me according to the will of the Father. I start the prayer cycle with my wants. The prayer, the downward cycle rains down in me and the Holy Spirit is working in me to better understand what the needs are. We pray the wants, we start there, and we end up with our prayers being adjusted so that we're praying more and more what the real need is and the real issue is. Exactly. That's exactly what happens. And if he can get us to give up before we, because it just doesn't do any good, uh, we have been made, our necks are pinned to the ground and we've been made blind and consider prayer ineffectual, then he has us. We're ineffectual Christians who believe a saving belief will get to heaven, but the rest of it doesn't compute. If he can get us to stay there, he's won the victory here as much as he can have. Yeah. So we have to keep on keeping on. And, <clears throat> uh, you know, the reason for that is that this, you know, Satan doesn't quit until he has to. He doesn't quit until he must. Let's turn to Daniel 9. I was going to double check this out and make sure it was 9 and not 10, and I forgot to do that, so I may... Um, actually, it is 10, the one that I'm really wanting to go to. 9 is very similar. But Daniel 10 is, is the one that's more specific. Um... In verse 1, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belshazzar, and the thing was true. Uh, and it caused, in verse 2, Daniel to begin to pray and to go into mourning for three full weeks. He ate no pleasant bread, neither 
uh, any meat nor wine in his mouth, so he went into a type of fasting. Neither did I anoint myself at all for three whole weeks until they were fulfilled. And in the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is called uh, Hittakel, and I think that's maybe the Tigris River, um, then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, um, and his loins were girded with fine gold. His body was also like burl, his face was the appearance of lightning, and his eyes were like lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet were like the color of polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw this vision, for the men that were with me did not see it. But there was a great quaking that fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. And I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me. And uh, he, he fell to the ground, um, and he felt corrupted. And yet I, uh, I heard the voice, verse 9, of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then I was in a deep sleep in my face uh, toward the ground. Behold, a hand touched me, which set uh, me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hand. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto you now, and stand upon your feet. For unto you now I have been sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. And then he said unto me, Don't be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you did set your heart to understand and to chasten yourself before God, your words were heard. And I am come because of your prayers. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days. And lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, had to come and help me. And I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now I am come to make you understand what shall befall your people in the latter days. What a picture here of the powers and the principalities and the rulers uh, of darkness in high places. He began intensely to fast and pray, and it took 21 days because immediately they heard. It didn't, it didn't interfere with heaven hearing earth's prayer. What interfered, what hindered, was the spiritual warfare that hindered God's answer coming to Daniel. And so there was this great titanic struggle as Daniel, the angel, passed through the spiritual dominion of Iran. Remember my cousin Barbara going from Zululand airspace to Kenyan airspace? It's because there was a dark ruler over Kenya that had not been broken, whose grip had not been broken, as it had, done in, had been in Zululand. Remember the temptation of Christ? With what did Satan tempt Christ? The kingdoms of this world took him to a high place, probably up there in the stratosphere. Showed him all the kingdoms of this world, and he said, I'll give these to you if you'll just worship me. Now, in Revelation uh, 11, 15, we see that the kingdoms of this world at that time 
at the sounding of the seventh trumpet are now becoming the kingdoms of Christ and of his Father. They are now coming to Christ through the Father's hand. The temptation was for Christ to take the kingdoms and bypass Calvary. Take the kingdoms through someone else's hand. And that somebody else's hand was Satan at that time. He has been given authority and dominion over this world. It would not have been a temptation to Christ had Satan not had those kingdoms to give to him. And so this struggle here with Daniel over the prince of Persia, that's not the king of Persia. That's not a physical being. An angel doesn't have to worry about wrestling with a human unless he wants to, like he did with Jacob. A human is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the spiritual ruler of Persia. And he, when, when, uh, Dan, uh, when uh, Gabriel passed through, I may have said Daniel, I meant Gabriel. When Gabriel passed through this spiritual realm, this spiritual kingdom territory uh, where this guy, this spiritual agent was in authority, he fought him. Because it was another kingdom invading 